Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. Now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Back in the studio again, and wow, that microphone is loud. This is going to be our last show for a while. We're going to take a hiatus. Hello, Leanne. Welcome back. I, I like <laughs> I, I like your new glasses, by the way. Thank you. Don't tell everybody about my obsession. No, uh, obsessed with glasses. I wear contacts. I have a lot of contacts. But anyway, uh, we have a special guest today, and we're not going to do a rant. We're just going to get right into the show because we're honored to have Father Christian Anderson. So where do you work, Father Christian Anderson? So I work at St. Mary's Episcopal Church right here in Stewart, Florida. And the people that are listening to this show locally, so not the podcast listeners maybe, probably know you from this exact radio station. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. So um, Dr. Ira's, I believe, your rabbi? My rabbi. Yeah, your rabbi. So the rabbi and I have a radio show called A Priest and a Rabbi. And we just got super original on that and also a podcast like you both and share the same producer and Frank the Tank who comes on and, and helps produce the show. So, yeah. So we're here every Friday morning at 9 a.m. So how long have you lived in Stewart? Working on four years. You're making a big splash because I know a lot of people that know who you are. And I think I know they know what you're trying to do here. And in other words, you're doing a good job. Oh, well, when you're six six and a priest, that I mean it just you kind of stick out. They remember you. Yeah, you got his collar on. There's not many collars in the world anymore. Like there's not a lot. You know, it's not as the church is not the big show in town. So you know. So what did the splashy priest do before he came to Stewart? Uh, the splashy priest before was in the entertainment world in uh, in Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was an actor out there for about ten years and uh, worked in TV and some soap opera stuff and commercials and all that fun stuff and and a lot of theater, a lot of theater. And the transition, why and how? Uh, I was on probation, and the judge said you can either become a priest or you can go to jail. And I said, No, I'm kidding. Um, I uh, it's something that had been growing my whole life. And so I was like, uh, you couldn't wait to say that, could you? I've never used that before. Actually, I've never it's, ever it's, used it's it. It's very good, by the okay, way. Okay, I'll stick. I'll, I'll try that again. But so, um, <laughs> yeah, it was just been growing my whole life, and then uh, I just, uh, it, it just, it just, it was like some people have that come to Jesus moment. It's like a pow. I had more like it was like a flower that was like slowly blooming, and then it was like obvious that I would go to seminary. And but in the Episcopal Church, you got to jump through all these fiery hoops that take years. So I had a lot of time to discern. But when you say come to Jesus moment, it's the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not a colloquialism. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah right, so exactly. you were acting and going to seminary at the same time? For a couple of years. Yeah. So it was actually during my most successful years of being an actor is when this big, the calling got really big. And then, so I was started booking this work out of the state, out of the country. And then I started going to part-time seminary in Los Angeles. And then it got crazy where I was like, I've got to go full time in the seminary thing because I was going to Fuller at the time, which is a, it was a pretty challenging seminary out in uh, L.A. And I was like, I can't be writing these papers in hotel rooms. And I was like just getting anxious and I got to go full time. And I was so surprised. I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to go full time in this and leave behind acting. So you're sitting around one day or you're lying in bed and you have this aha moment. How does that happen? Uh, it was it was just a slow, a slow drip. 
And I, it was just that moment of like, when I had realized I have to go full time. And I was like, if I have to go full time, no, you know what it was? There was a moment when I got a audition to be a lead on a Disney show. Anytime, any day of the week, I would have been so excited. It was one of those game changer auditions. It was like, okay, if I book this, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. And then I, um, I had to write this paper for, I think, systematics or something. And I said, oh, God, this audition is in the way. I was like, what? I was like, oh, my gosh, something's changing here. This is weird. I think this is starting to, starting to get me. And so and then I realized, all right, I got to go full time in this. And there, have you ever looked back? Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I miss the action. It's hard not to. I miss the action. I miss the big city. I miss um, hunting for your next paycheck. You know, all that, all that. You got to like the hustle as an actor. You got to like the hustle. If you don't like the hustle, if you just do it for the craft, um, it's not, that's not going to be enough. You have to like the hustle. So I do miss that. Um, but uh, uh, so we'll see. Maybe there'll be a marriage of the two in the future. And how did you end up here in Stewart, Florida? Uh, a buddy of mine who I just had on our radio show uh, was offered the job first and he turned it down because he got another job in Baltimore. And he said, you know what though? I think I know the kind of guy you're looking for. And so this guy, and I actually, he and I weren't friends. I just interned at the church that he just interned at. And he said, I think I know what you're looking for. This dude who just got hired as the intern at the church I was just at might be your guy. And so I was in Ecuador serving a church out there. And this guy, Father Todd here in Stewart, uh, Skyped me. And that was just one of those God things. I was like, oh, oh yeah. This so is what right. was Father Todd looking for? They, so in the Episcopal church, since the traditional church, they, they have, uh, so as you know, as you both know, as residents, there's more and more uh, young families moving here. So there was an influx of young families coming in. So they needed someone who was youngish and, uh, and then they also needed someone who can handle a contemporary service. So as an Episcopal church, we're kind of like the Catholic church where we have that traditional liturgy. Uh, and then they want to have the rock band and the screens as well. So they got to have someone who likes both, which is, believe it or not, it's hard to find in the Episcopal church. So when Gray Maggiano turned on the job. He said, but I think I know a dude who just, who loves this stuff. He's kind of evangelical. He likes this stuff. Um, he'll put his hands in the air, but at the same time be really solemn and he'll throw the smoke in the air too and be all traditional as well. And uh, so that's, that's what they were looking for. And so you came here by yourself or at do the you time, have a family? Uh, yeah. So at the time I was dating uh, this beautiful gal named Anastasia who's living in Jersey. And then, um, and then, so we dated throughout seminary and then I moved down here and then I finally proposed her when I was down here. And then, um, it took her a while to, uh, and so, so then we couldn't move in together cause you just can't do that in the church, you know, even if you're engaged. So it took a while to get her here and then we finally got married and then she could move in. So you lost the Disney part, but you kept the Disney name. Nice, buddy. That was in the moment. That wasn't even scripted. Is it because of Anastasia? Absolutely. Uh, well, I wish that was a Disney movie. <gasps> oh, <laughs> man. Fact check. So what happens next with you and Anastasia? Uh, seven months pregos. Whoa. Yeah. A little baby Christian coming around. Yeah, baby boy right around the corner. It's so just... I imagine that you have a mission. You have a clear mission. That's what landed you here. What is your mission uh, what are your missions? What are your passions? What are you trying to do here in Stuart? Uh, well, one of them is just to build the next generation of the church. So, you know, it, as we all know, as I said before, the church is not the hottest show in town anymore. Um, and, the, and the rabbi talk about this in the synagogue too, you know, numbers across the country. I mean, we're at a church that's healthy, which is nice, but still, it's still building the next generation. So I get excited about young leaders, uh, lifting people up to get excited about church, about God. Uh, and then uh, I get really excited about the unchurched people who are not in a church at all 
but I still believe that everyone's hungry for a relationship with the divine, even if they see they're an atheist. Uh, and then particularly for our context, I get excited about interfaith stuff and then, you know, finding out what are the big needs of like, where are the lines of division in society? How does the church get involved in the healing of that? Uh, so racial reconciliation, um, economic disparities, all those things. How do we, I feel like that's where Jesus leads us into. And so how do we get involved with that through, through relationship? It seems like society is always changing. And it seems with the advent of modern technology, Skype, phones, smartphones, computers everywhere, things are changing instantaneously. Yeah. The church, just like the synagogue, <laughs> seems to be much slower to change. Do you find that difficult as the church is slower to change and you want to move things along a little bit more rapidly? Well, there's always this, yes, but there's a push-pull because I think sometimes the church can be countercultural. So when everything else is going digital, we're saying, but you still got to be right as as a as a rabbi would say panima panim you gotta be face to face with people so it provides this place like let's put down the phones let's put down all that stuff and let's just be together in community because we learn so much and we grow together when we can be um in the same space uh, we can hold one another's hand and pray so nothing's going to beat that but yes we're way behind on uh because listen when people have a, an issue going in life you guys know this they they, they jump on the internet and they're going to try to do the WebMD thing, right? To figure out and try to diagnose themselves through Dr. Internet, which is very scary. And then, so same thing with faith. And they're having discussions. If there's another shooting, they're going to go online and go on Twitter and go on these places, talk about this stuff. And if the church is not involved with that, there's just all that anxiety producing crap. Can I say crap? You can say okay. crap. Okay, you can crap. say that. Okay. Um, That's our last show. You could probably say whatever you wanted. For you already did. <laughs> yeah. So I said crap already. There we go again. Um, so... So, so the church has got to be there. I remember one time the, the shooting happened in South Carolina and I was, uh, I remember going online and the diocese of South Carolina was nowhere to be seen. All these conversations, where was God in this? There's a shooting at a church and the diocese of South Carolina, the Episcopal diocese and a lot of other dioceses like the Catholic church or other churches were nowhere to be seen talking about this and, and people want answers. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's important for us to, we have to put money behind it. We have to put personnel behind it. We have to hire the people who know how to do this stuff, how to be effective on all the different social media platforms, how to be involved with the digital church. But there's one thing that you do and that we do, and I think we all do it well, and that is we relate to the human factor and the human condition because we actually listen to people, we talk to people, we put our hands out, and we care about people, and we touch people. And that emotional connection is something that you can't get through social media. That's extremely well put. That's that's true. So we are going to get started with the meat of our show. And um, I just want to let our listeners know that our goal in designing this last show before we take a hiatus was to try to make it more of a discussion. And I hope that we're able to do that. Um, I think that the interesting thing about talking about spirituality and medicine, which is what we're here to do today for our show, Physician Heal Thyself is the name of the show. The difficult thing is that there are some facts regarding spirituality and 
medicine, but this is sort of a newer discussion that we're now having in medicine and I guess in the community. And so, you know, there it's, we scripted the show kind of, but there's not much to go off of. So in medicine, it's not true unless we studied it, right? It does, it's not, it's not a fact unless we can prove that it's been replicated and reproduced. And this is exactly what faith and spirituality can't do. Right. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so we're going to muddle along. You mean there's no evidence-based spirituality, Leanne? Ah, uh, you know, I guess it depends on who you ask. So anyway, okay, so let's get started. So our last guest on the show represented hospice, and we spoke a lot about the role of spirituality in end-of-life care. We interviewed these guests. We talked about how the care team in a hospice setting always involves spiritual, um, you know, priests, rabbis, ministers, people that are important to the spirituality of the individual patient. Father Christian, my question for you is, what do you think or hope is the role of spirituality in middle of life care, right? Because in other words, in medicine, we are all plugged into the idea that at the end of life, people have um, spiritual hangups that need to be resolved. But I would beg to say that we are having spiritual hangups all throughout life. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and and another addition to that too is the preparing for retirement spiritual that that part about like so I'm about to retire, uh, and now my life is going to change dramatically. So what does that mean spiritually for me? Because that's a big change, which I don't think we prepare well as a society. We prepare well for the financial part of it, of how I can be financially ready for retirement. But what does this mean that I might move out of my home? I might move into another. I'm going to move to Florida and move to a gated community. And then I'm getting older, though. My body's not working and I'm losing friends and all my friends are back at home. And now I can't go play golf because my knees are shot. And then my spouse just died. And where is God in the midst of all this? Right. We don't prepare ourselves for the, all that that big change for for a middle life crisis. Um, it, it's it's and you're talking more of just from a spiritual standpoint. Yeah. I mean, you know, because this is the thing. I think all of a, all, all physicians are prepared when we walk into the bedside of a dying patient that God's going to enter this conversation. But I think what patients are telling us is that God's been a part of the conversation all along, but physicians aren't necessarily having that conversation. Do you, do you feel that from people? I mean, I know that you're not necessarily sitting down asking about the relationship between patients and their physicians, but I imagine it comes up. Yes. I, yeah, I think that, I mean, of course, I'm going to be biased, but from my own experience that if a physician, I would never expect a physician to actually talk about spirituality, but if there is a, like, never ever, but when, just because it just seems that it's it's, it's on the, that would be the left side of the brain, right? But we do. But you do, that's good. But like, so I've had, I've had, so I've had a therapist, right? And so the therapist knows I'm a priest and I start talking about faith and the therapist will follow my lead, mm -hmm. right? And so then she can start, she's not like she's sharing her faith, but it's kind of like wink, wink. She's talking about God in a way where it's like, oh, you clearly have faith and you clearly go to church, but she's doing it in a way where she's following my lead. So she's staying in my world. So she's not making about her faith, but my faith and how has this helped Christian figure this issue out that he's got going on. So I think that that's like, a, I, I put out the feelers. She takes it. There's an invitation. And now she starts speaking my lingo because it's about my, my care. 
So this is a perfect lead-in for some facts, okay? So in preparation for this show, I was looking at articles and um, editorials published in medical journals talking about, you know, do, have we ever quantified what it is that people think or are looking for? And so here's some facts I found out. Nine out of 10 physicians believe it is important to discuss spiritual or religion issues when patients bring it up. That's That's, you know. That feels good. And I, uh, I had no idea it was going to be okay. that high. Yeah, yeah. Five out of 10 physicians bring it up purposely in a patient interview. And one out of 10 physicians bring up their personal religious beliefs in patient interviews. Four out of five physicians rarely or never pray with patients. Um, physicians who identified themselves as strongly religious were more than twice likely to bring up religion, regardless of the type of religion they practiced. Um, 83% of patients in a family practice setting wanted physicians to ask about their spiritual beliefs in at least some circumstances. And among those who wanted to discuss spirituality, 87% indicated that the most important reason for discussion was the desire for physician-patient understanding. I think that means uh, they felt like it was part of relationship building between them and their physician. Those are some interesting facts. And I want to throw in two comments to kind of lead this off. Leanne, you and I both have worked for large corporate medical practices. Do you find that large corporate medical practices, have you done any research or reading that says that they discourage talking about religion and God and praying with patients because it's not on the corporate agenda, that, that's point number one. And point number two is, if this country ever went to a single-payer system, a Medicare for all, where we're all working for the federal government, then do we have to worry about talking about it because of the separation of church and state? Well, you know, so I think the biggest barrier in my opinion, for talking about any issues related to beliefs, whether they're spiritual beliefs or any other kind of beliefs, is a time factor. So in that way, I think that institutions automatically discourage these types of discussions because they're lengthy. You know, when you are ticking down the minutes sitting in front of a patient who's taking a long time to describe their symptoms, the last thing you want to bring up is how they feel about God. I mean, that's a big discussion. So I think that corporations are going to automatically discourage it. Do I remember receiving any message from the corporations I ever worked for? No. In fact, I was trained at a Catholic institution. So that's interesting because it, faith and spirituality and medicine would come up because there are certain things we weren't allowed to do, right? We weren't allowed to prescribe birth control. We weren't allowed to participate in abortions, which, you know, from a training perspective was a challenge depending on the circumstance because we were also serving a patient population that was childbearing age and, you know, had questions about this and may not have shared the same beliefs of the system I worked for. So, you know, I think that even in that setting, I'm not sure that I was being encouraged to develop a spiritual based conversation with patients ever by the corporation. I mean, it was almost like they weren't talking about it. No one's talking. In fact, no one's talking about it, right? Like that's the whole point is that there are not a lot of uh, facts coming from, da from data, from research or any other institution to say, how are we supposed to embark on these conversations? But I wonder if we did talk about it earlier and we realized 
earlier on that patients who had strong religious beliefs were more likely to accept news about a bad illness, a terminal illness. They're more at peace with themselves. They have a more of a inner peace because they have a higher power to turn to. Would it make, and this is not why I'm saying this, but ultimately would it make our job and our future encounters with those patients easier to deal with because we brought it up early on and we realized that they were more comfortable with their illness than we ever thought they were because they did seek that higher power for guidance. I think that is a hundred percent accurate. I mean, this, this, these facts that I just quoted said that physicians who identified as themselves being strongly religious are more likely to talk about it. And I think, you know, I plan to discuss later on in the group, like maybe it's because we, you know, as people, as humans who are also seeking spiritual guidance as, you know, we're physicians, but we're humans first, that maybe we feel unqualified to talk about that kind of thing with patients. I don't know. I well, mean, it's such a personal faith. It's, 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 it's tricky. And I, but you, as physicians, though, on the sheet sometimes doesn't it show you if they have, um, uh, if they're, if, if they filled it out, what religion they sure. practice? Uh, yep. So wouldn't that give an invitation that if you felt like it was appropriate to, if, if, if it was a, you're dealing with something that's pretty chronic or end of life, that for you to say, I don't know, it would be up to you, but the person put it down, they felt comfortable saying that they're an Episcopalian, they're a Catholic, they're, they're, you know, a, a reformed Jew. Um, that if you felt uh, able to speak about it, then, they, but I think you have to, you go off their lead, right? I mean, would you Absolutely. ever feel comfortable you bringing it up? Well, you know, I think a lot of times I'll ask patients, um, are I, I will start by saying, are you a spiritual person, right? Because automatically, if I, sometimes people will say yes, I already know and they're going to say yes, right? I already know because of the context of other discussions. But sometimes when I say, are you a spiritual person? The very first thing that they say is a guilt-laden comment, like, I haven't been to church, but yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in God's presence in my life. And so that in and of itself is an invitation to kind of dig further and say, well, why? I mean, we're here talking about anxiety. We're here talking about depression. And you just said that you think it's important that you haven't been to church. What does that mean to you? So I definitely meet people where they are. And, you know, I might give personal examples of myself, but I've had these discussions with all kinds of people of different faiths and it doesn't seem to matter. Right. I mean, you know that. Right. Right. I, I wonder <laughs> if, if you two would have. So if I'm the chaplain who comes in there, mm -hmm. it, there's a whole connotation that comes in with I'm the chaplain. I'm representing the, the God industry. Right. But there's something when you two bring it up, which is even more like the common man, like my doctor gets me. And mm -hmm. so you say, are you spiritual? I almost feel like that person might open up more to you than to me. Because they might have real guilt. They're like, oh, I got to tell this priest I haven't been to church forever where you're just like, hey. You know, and you're, you're, you're not trying to, there's no strings attached for you. You're just trying to help them out. Right. Where with me, they might think like, oh, is he going to sit here and condemn me? Or is he going to try to proselytize? You know what I'm saying? So from a priest, I get it. And from an actor, I get it because you're telling me it's best left unscripted and we can do it unscripted. They expect you to do it. They don't expect us to do it. 
If you just join us, we're WSTU 1450. We're here with Father Christian Anderson tonight. We're going to be right back right after this short commercial break. They play our our. Oh, yeah, we've recorded our own. Welcome back. You're listening to Paradox. Today's show is called Physician Heal Thyself. It's me and Ira again in the studio. And today we are interviewing, discussing with Father Christian Anderson, who is a priest at St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart. Before we took our break, we were having a general discussion about uh, spirituality and medicine. And I think this is the perfect segue into an article that was from the University of Chicago Chronicle, published in the July issue of the Journal of Internal Medicine in 2005. And this study was sort of groundbreaking. Um, this study was, um, I think, probably some of the groundwork to the development of a program at the University of Chicago that was trying to create more research and more discussion about spirituality and medicine. Um, and this study said that a whopping 76% of doctors stated that they believed in God compared with only 39% of scientists and only about 70% of Americans overall. So for some strange reason, doctors who are scientists believe in God at a higher rate than regular people and especially than scientists. The study cited multiple previous surveys that reported incongruities between physicians and general trends. For example, typically a belief in a higher power tends to decrease with higher education and higher income. Um, of which doctors typically are both. The study also reported that scientists specifically, especially biologists, tend to report a significantly decreased belief in a higher power. And the majority of physicians studied biology heavily in undergraduate studies. Um, the typical people exposed to multiple 
faiths reported decreased belief in a higher power, and physicians obviously report greater exposure to other faiths than the general public, not just from patient encounters, but also because our colleagues are um, represented in higher percentages than the general public of other faiths and religions. The type of faith practice also seemed to affect how religious views affected their practice of medicine, with Christians and Buddhists reporting the highest impact and Hindu and Jewish physicians reporting the least impact of their own personal religious beliefs um, on their practice of medicine. And additionally, the type of medicine practice affected how religion affected their other dealings, with generalists such as family doctors and pediatricians reporting more impact than other physician specialties such as radiologists and psychiatrists. And this article was written by Dr. Farr Curlin, who was the director of the University of Chicago Program on Medicine and Religion. Now he's on faculty at Duke. And he is quoted to say, it would be good if doctors got up in the morning and when they were going to work thought, it is a sacred work that I'm doing and even uttering a prayer. God help me do this well, he said. It is not something that is talked about very much or talked about enough in my mind within the profession itself, but we are going to change that. I like this, Dr. Curlin. <laughs> I like it too. But, you know, I find it a little contradictory as to how a lot of us view religion and spirituality. I'm Jewish. That's not a surprise. We talk about it a lot on these shows. But yet... I have the word of God in my inner office. I have a mezuzah on the door. Uh, I am the Lord your God is written in there. And I also have a prayer written by Moshe ben Maimonides, which is Moses Maimonides, who was a physician, philosopher, and rabbi from the Middle Ages. He was born like around 1135. So we're talking 12th century. And at least once a day, I walk by that prayer in my office and I read it. And he's responsible for the physician's prayer, which the gist of it is, may I find strength and courage in my pursuit of knowledge and healing, and may I continue to be inspired in my concern towards people in need. That's in my office. Every one of my patients sees that when they enter my office. So I think that depending upon our personal views, what part of the country we reside in, and our patient population, that these statistics are not necessarily steadfast, that they change based on the population in which you and I practice and our environment. I'm not surprised by the study at all. Why? Because you all are on the front lines of seeing the brokenness of, of people. They are, you're in situations where people walk in very vulnerable. And if you would have to be a robot to not have, or just lack empathy completely uh, to, to not feel people's pain and their struggle and people who are, who tap into that vulnerable part of their hearts, that if there is an inkling of spirituality inside you, I think it's going to be amplified because you're going to be asking a lot of existential questions that like I do in my line of work of why God, why, why did you allow this woman who was having this 
you know, she's a mother, she's got three children, and now she got diagnosed with with cancer, and she's going to die within five weeks. That 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 ex, those existential questions are going to be provoked a lot more than a biologist, more than a scientist, because they're not dealing a lot of times with this. You, you, your doctors, some people go in for the money, sure. But some of like you guys, there's a calling, there's a calling you have to serve and you care for others. And the best doctors are those who really care for others. So the doctors who are really caring for this human being. You want to heal them saying that prayer that you just, you, that you just said, it would make sense that you would have a, 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 a there'd be a high rate of, of faith. Um, and understanding of why are we here and why does this stuff happen and for seeking support beyond yourself from a higher power to help you to be to be a healer. So uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that doctors would have the faith and biologists and other scientists would not. Makes sense. Makes sense. So in preparation for this discussion, I was thinking, OK, so in other words, we we know we are typically as a group more religious than the average Americans. Um, so why aren't, and we know, I just quoted, you know, some stats that said that patients want to hear this from us. So why aren't we having these discussions? And so, you know, there's a lot of responses to this, but I thought maybe one of the reasons is because we don't feel qualified. So my question for you, Father Christian, is I know that you do a lot of interacting with, um, different laymen that go out to the community and speak about God. So, I mean, of, of my little knowledge of what you do, I would say like the lay Eucharist. So the Stephen ministry, how do you train laymen to talk about God? I mean, I mean, the biggest lesson right from the beginning is, is you walk inside the room and you're training a bunch of people, you go up on the chalkboard and you just put, listen, and then you walk outside the classroom and say, that's your first lesson, right? So as you go as a lake, you're Eucharistic minister. Those are the people who visit people's homes and bring them the, the Holy Eucharist. Or people who are just in the caring ministry, go to hospital rooms or the Stephen ministers who say, I mean, your main thing is allow the other person to work it out with God. God, God is the, the whole thing of Stephen ministry is God is the cure taker. You as a Stephen minister are just the caretaker. So you're allowing God to come in and do the work. Uh, your job is to love and to listen. So if you're trying to proselytize or trying to push something on them, uh, you're just going to stall, create obstacles. So it's asking the questions. I think that the questions you were saying earlier in the show, where you're like, "What does that mean to you?" So do you do? You, uh, are you are are you spiritual? So you start from the from, from the meta. You start real big, right? And like more of this macro way of looking at things and saying, "So so so tell me more." So are, are you spiritual about this? What does that mean to you? How do you find that to help you with this situation? You're just asking empowering questions. You're not coming with a direct line of saying, "Do you know Jesus?" So, so how are you going to pray for this tonight? And where do you find, you know, God in the middle? I mean, I, I think that you don't have to be a professional. I think you just ask open-ended questions that are large enough for the person to get as detailed as they want and you allow them to lead. And so in, with that, I will say that obviously we take care of people all the time who aren't necessarily, maybe they're of a different religion entirely, but most certainly everyone other than ourselves is somewhere else in their relationship with God, right? <laughs> so so it seems like um, that might be another barrier, right, is that you don't necessarily feel comfortable talking to somebody about a faith that you are not part of. So interfaith ministries you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, as, when I was trained as a chaplain, I was at a Catholic hospital and they, as a chaplain, they train you, you're going in there to, you might have a Buddhist, you might have a Hindu, you might have uh, someone who's Jewish, you, you could have someone who's atheist. 
So you go in, you're not carrying your set of beliefs in there. You are just going again to be a presence of listening and of loving that person. And wherever they go with it, whether they're atheist or whether they're Hindu, you're just being curious. You're just being caring. You're just being loving and wanting them because they, when they tell their story and they talk about their faith, and when you show that you care about that, they're inviting this meditation on, on the divine and they're going to find, they're going to figure out some answers. Um, and so I think you just being curious and really, I'm telling you the questions you asked before were perfect because it's not, you didn't, you sounded honestly, you were curious because you cared about them. It wasn't like, oh, I'm about to tell this person about Jesus or, you know, so if they believe in Brahma or if they, you know, if, they, if it's about, um, you know, Allah, then you just say, so, so where, 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 where's God in all this for you then? Or tell me more about your spirituality. You know, how, how do you find it's going to, you know, where, where does that work with all that's going on? I think just be curious. I listened to a TED talk years ago, which was, you know how certain talks you listen to can be life-changing? Mm -hmm. And I started asking people why they do what they do and why they feel the way they feel rather than how they feel or how do they do something? Because when you get down to the why someone does something or why someone feels that way, it emotes passion in that person. And when you emote that passion, it makes it easier for them to talk about their feelings. And it's just kind of a trick, not a trick, it's an art that I learned from listening to this TED Talk years ago. And I find that if I want to emote from someone their feelings about their religion or death or anxiety about their illness, I ask them, tell me why you feel the way you do. Mm -hmm. And then I just sit back and listen. Yeah. And, you know, we've had other guests on this show, uh, you know, Mindy Fetterman and uh, Planned Parenthood who have talked about essentially the average public it might be very disconnected from the trauma that individuals that have had difficult lives have led. And, you know, I always say that I've lived a charmed life. I had lovely parents who were married and, you know, grew up without ever knowing that we didn't have a lot. And I accept that people are meeting me oftentimes in a very different place. And I think that allowing them to explain their truth and come from that place and is probably, you know, giving them power again to kind of talk about why it is that how it is that they ended up wherever they are sure asking the questions and you guys it's 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 but the one question you brought up before uh was do you have time mm -hmm. so do you have time i mean when in your practices you guys do have time because your practice is built to have that for the average doctor though does an average doctor have that time when they come into a room or the average specialist have that time to sit down and let's say i'm going to save five minutes or 10 minutes to check in with, with or maybe maybe just five minutes even if it's a couple questions at the end um do, do, do they a do they have the time and b do you think there's fear that if I do this, I might ruin my patient a doctor relationship because they're going to be like, dude, whoa, you just crossed you the just line crossed there. The line. And so, you know, that brings up my next point, which is I believe at one time medicine and spirituality were really linked. Right. And so there was there was healing. There was physical healing going on with prayers. And we were, you know, pr praying all the time with patients. And then sometime around the beginning of the 19th century, we started practicing fact based medicine. And the shift 
went over to science. And I believe that with that came this kind of cultural shift that said, your personal beliefs as a physician do not belong here. Not just that they uh, they might not have a space here. Like specifically, you may not talk about religion, that separation of church of state. And so I guess my question for you, Ira, is when you were training, you know, so long ago compared to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's not paying for dinner tonight. Um, what was the vibe? What was the vibe back then about uh, religion and its place in the exam room? It really wasn't mentioned. We really didn't bring it up. It wasn't even on the table. Uh, everything that we have, that I do now, has been an evolution in a career. Uh, it was all the, it was all the science. It was seeing patients, uh, treating diseases, and not really getting into a spiritual. Uh, realm with with the patient. You know, even on our show that we had, and we've had two psychiatric shows now. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the remote show with Dr. Perry Mandanis, which was a brilliant show. A uh, shout out for his uh, uh, podcast, Couch Stories. I just heard the third episode, which was amazing. And then we had the show early on with Dr. Molly Ryan. We talked about that mind-body connection in both those shows. That Diseases are not separate entities. It's everything is related and everything can be controlled centrally by your thought processes. Certainly a patient who has a better attitude towards a devastating disease tends to do better with that disease process than someone who gives up early on. So I think when you bring spirituality into medicine early on, it strengthens that mind-body connection and helps the patient heal. So it would be then a natural assumption that um, prayer, right, with the patient could help reframe the situation. In other words, you know, in medicine right now, a lot of us practice defensive medicine, right, because we're worried about uh, patients suing us for uh, wrong decisions or and, and and actually there's lots of studies that say that that's not usually why patients sue that in fact the closer relationship they have with the physician is what determines whether or not they're likely to sue that physician and so in other words like every other person if you if you like someone, you're less likely to, you know, get put a lawsuit against them. So that being said, I think that prayer would be very powerful because in prayer, that's when you're saying this isn't your fault, patient, or my fault, physician, right? This is a disease that happened to you. Uh, cancer, right? So we always talk about cancer as like fight the battle, etc. And sometimes there's a lot of blame that naturally occurs when you're trying to say, well, somebody should have found it earlier, or I deserved this because of the way that I lived my life. But in fact, it's just happenstance that these things happen to us. And prayer is a way to kind of say, well, okay, it, it does, it's the blame doesn't belong to you or to me. And let's ask God for help. But we know that physicians don't feel comfortable praying with patients. What did we say? One out of five physicians are even a little bit likely to pray with patients, despite the fact that 40 to 60 percent of patients wish that their physicians prayed with them. So why do you think that is? Why don't physicians feel comfortable praying with patients? Well, we are in a post-religious country now, right? So the numbers of just religion being talked about and religion being practiced is 
pretty pretty low, right? So we're in a, in a uh, postmodern society where it's just not the topic. It's you know, I was in LA and I would tell people I'm going to church in the morning. People like, you know, it's 2012 or something like that, right? They would laugh because it's like that, that was, that's an archaic thing. So I could see where in any industry to say, do you want to pray is now a pretty rare thing. Now we live now and live in the South. We're not in the Bible belt, but still um, maybe there's more comfort in that. You just never know what's going to come. I get nervous when I have someone approach me and say, I want to pray with you because I don't know where they're at on the, on the whole Jesus radar. Are, are they going to get weird? Or, or, well, what kind of prayer are we going to be doing here? And you just, you never know where, where, where this is going to go because there's, there's a whole different way of interpreting this. Are they going to come with judgment? Are they going to come with like this deep proselytize? Are they going to go pray for 10 minutes? Uh, do they, do they have strings attached? You know, I, I think that the, the evangelical movement sort of brought this, and I'll say this as an evangelical Episcopalian brought this fear that we have, especially in the States, that if this person starts talking about prayer, are there strings attached and they're going to try to do some kind of conversion to me and some kind of altar call at the end of this? Uh, and um, or they're going to try to proselytize. And, and I don't think we fear that as much with our Jewish brothers and sisters, because it, there's not that kind of uh, uh, undertone of evangelism that comes with it. Right. It might actually be taken more authentically and be like, oh, I think my doctor just really cares and loves me. So unfortunately, the history, I think, of Christianity in this country has put people on their back heels and they're worried about what are your true intentions? Tensions. So the when when the doctor comes with that curious tone, Harry has a good relationship built, like you all do in your practices. You have the time to nurture these relationships. They respect you. They trust you. They know you're not going to proselytize. And you're asking the questions where you built the rapport, where you've shared a couple spiritual ideas, and then you say, and they talked about prayer. I mean, you can you can go for it, but uh, you guys have to read that. You guys know your patients. You guys get a lot of good time with them. I mean, how many of your patients do you have to say, you had to put a number on it right now? Uh, how, what's the percentage of your patients that you would say, if I had to do it, I could maybe, I would try it with 15%, 5%, 30% of your patients that you think you could do it without the person freaking out? Well, I, I think more than that, if if I come at it from the perspective of meeting people where they are, I can, I feel like I could, that about maybe five to 10 people want me to. Right. So I think that the rest of them, we still have spiritual conversations without prayer. But I think that five to 10 people, it would just make their day. <laughs> How about you, Dr. Ira? I think it's a little bit higher. Uh, okay. I think I know my patients well. I think my patients would invite me to do that. Uh, I usually, when my patients uh, pass away, I usually attend their funeral service. In fact, uh, I've been to Paul Bear at several funerals of many different faiths. And uh, I think I would say half of my patients would be very happy if I did that. So how many right now would you feel comfortable within the next month bringing it up? Now, I'm, I'm not challenging you to do it. I'm just saying, so we're look, we just, we just looked at the numbers. We, we've been talking about this. How many do you think it would be an appropriate and a good thing? And a good thing for you to do, say, I really think this would benefit my patient if I brought this up just to invite this for our patient-doctor relationship. But I also think it's good for them. It might bring a lot of peace and calm to them. I think it depends what they're coming in for. But right now that you're talking about, there, how many instances do you think like, you know what? Yeah, that that woman who comes in on Wednesdays, she might be really good for this. Is there anyone that comes to your mind? Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I think that I think that the the. <laughs> 
the challenge of prayer and prayer making both of us vulnerable because I, I mean that's what it is right it, we, that's that's saying i'm vulnerable and you're vulnerable and we're asking god to help both of us here i do think it has to be the right setting and i i think that i would say probably one out of six patients every day is in some kind of a crisis. And I would say that the majority of those people would probably welcome prayer. But I also, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like that's a relationship that you have to establish with them. I think that there are some people that come to me and say, I want to know your religion. I want it to match mine. Okay. So it's, a, it's helps. It, in all that, in all that discussion about, you know, our culture being very reluctant to, um, want to push beliefs on someone else. I think that even people that you know very well, you have ha you've had to at least hint at this in previous discussions for it to be welcome. But it's like anything else. You set boundaries. Yeah. You know, would you feel comfortable discussing prayer in the office? Would you feel comfortable if I prayed with you in the office? Would that add comfort? Or do you want to seek that form of comfort elsewhere. I will say that and you just ask them every patient that I've visited at their bedside it, 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 in their dying days that it somehow has been linked to that, you know, where I feel like I knew their spiritual beliefs when they were conscious and talking. And, you know, my parting words when I leave them is that I hope Jesus wraps them up in their arms and they feel comfortable with that. So would this show affect how you guys might bring up prayer with any of your patients? I think for me, yeah. And you know what? I think so. I, I also think that, you know, since, what you guys did. <laughs> you're such a teacher. I know. I you, think, you, are you wonderful? I think this that, you know, when I wrote this show a couple days ago, since then, I have been purposely thinking on my way to work the words Brilliant of Dr. Writing, by the way. Thank you. The words of Dr. Curlin, right? That this is sacred work that we do because sometimes it does get lost. And, you know, I'll tell my mom without revealing any HIPAA violations about some of the struggles that I have. And she'll say all the time, Leanne, that's not your fault. And I'm like, I know it's not my fault, but she needs to say that, right? Because she's my mom and she loves me. And so that's what that prayer is, right? This is a sacred work that we do. And some, most of these things I cannot fix. And that and I think that that sets the tone for the day. Well, maybe the world is just full of anger and people want more peace and comfort. And maybe we could provide that for our patients if we offered it to them. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you that uh, as a parting thought for the show, um, this has become definitely an area of future study for medicine. There are most medical schools that are now incorporating spirituality as a dimension of human relations. Residency programs are requiring competency in the discussion of spiritual matters. So I think the pendulum is swinging the other way. We've figured out that people can't live without some sort of connection to a uh, higher meaning, whatever that is. The last 26 weeks have been phenomenal. Leanne, you are an incredible co-host, an incredible friend. I can't wait to come back and do a whole new, brand new format of shows. Give us a couple months. We're going to reformat this show. We're going to be back out there. And Father Christian, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest on our show. For everyone that wants to listen to you more... Come find me on YouTube at Your Favorite Christian. Uh, we have a YouTube channel with my wife, and uh, come find us there. Thank you.